cooking issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Newsstand Studios at Rockefeller Center. Joined, as usual, with Joe Hazen, the engineer in the booth. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you? We got Jackie Molecules out there in California. Jackie, uh, hey, I'm hey. doing great. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I just made it before the rain. I was biking like a demon, so it, it feels like it's rained on me because I'm sweating so hard. And for those of you that pay for the Patreon video, like you'll be able to see that I'm dressed like a picnic table, right, Joe? I'm dressed like a picnic table. Yeah. So uh, Nastasia forgot all of you know during the pandemic what it's like to try to drive in in New York City, like at any time of day. It's a crapshoot. So she's going to be here in a couple of minutes because uh, she got caught in the never-ending nightmare of traffic that is I-95, the worst corridor in the East. Am I wrong about this? Anyone? Anyone going to defend I-95? No way. Yeah, no, no defense for I ninety five. No defense, even down in South Florida. It's- the whole thing's trash. Like it's like Eisenhower is rolling over in his grave. This is what we. This is what we ended up with. You know, like God forbid we do have some sort of like domestic emergency that requires moving a, bo- a boatload of stuff up and down the coast. And what we have is I ninety five. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> anyway. Uh, not only, it's not just that it's a bad road. I'm sorry, it's the last thing I say about it because we have a lot to get to today. It's not just that it's a crappy road, but like literally, like you feel punked by it. They'll like strip a lane off for no reason so that the traffic gets clogged and then add it again, like literally a hundred yards down the road. You know what I'm saying? It's just garbage. Yeah. It's filth. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. Uh, and by the way, if you are listening live, if you're a Patreon member listening in live, call in your questions to 917-410-1507. That's 917-410-1507. Oh, before this, we are now, by the way, on the iTunes. What are the other things, Jack, that people get their podcasts from? Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, basically anywhere you can find podcasts. Right. So if you're we hearing there, you need to resubscribe to us on the new RSS don't ask why. Don't ask why. <laughs> Who cares why? Right? Someone got on my on the Twitter and was like, hey, Dave, can you go on the old feed and just make like a 20-second podcast and say to join the new feed so that the old people can get it? And I was like, dude, I wish. I wish I could do that. I can't, and I don't want to talk about it. Just join the new feed. Joe, it's like pushing one button, right? Let's do it. Yeah, a few buttons, And yes. for everybody that is has already subscribed, um, you know, ra- put a rating on there. Rate, review, subscribe, as they say. Yeah, because our old our old ratings, our old ratings, they don't propagate. I can't. We can't get the eleven years of work, and we can't propagate the reviews. Am I wrong about this, Jack? We cannot transfer the reviews, but we can get new reviews. We can get new reviews. So if you like us, leave a review, I and if not, maybe stars. you can forget. You know what I'm saying? If you like us, yeah. leave a good review. Yeah. If not, maybe you can fail. Okay, so today we have, live from Pittsburgh, special guest, first time on the show, uh, The reason, Dr. Laren Thomas. How you doing? Good. How are you guys? Doing well. So, first of all, Pittsburgh. Uh, do you have any, what, what's, uh, I've only been to Pittsburgh once, uh, and also to, uh, outside to the steel area, we're going to talk about steel Braddock once, love the Joe Majorak sculpture. Do you like that sculpture? Uh, Yeah. Big steel bending. Do you know you're familiar? You're, obviously, you're familiar with the Joe Majorak legend, right? No. Really? No. Okay. So tell me. So uh, I don't ask again. Don't ask why. But like you know, years ago I went through kind of an American folklore rabbit hole, and there's all of these uh, in the after the industrialization of America. Uh, there was a series of legends, like John Henry being the most famous of kind of humans versus machines right so like kind of the like the the human spirit as it goes through industrialization but uh joe majorak which is typically built around you know an eastern european uh most accurately probably hungarian kind of a a, a model of a of a kind of like hard-working uh, immigrant in the steel mills is kind of the opposite of john henry like they're gonna i think the legend goes they're gonna shut down the steel plant and they're doing one last uh melt and Joe Majorak, who's like the strongest steel man, you know, anywhere, jumps into the melt and becomes part of the wow. steel. And that is the greatest melt that had ever, ever been produced up to that time, made the best steel. And so, like, that was the steel that made, like, that, like, I guess that plant or that whatever great. And so Joe Majorak is like, 
the human that's literally part of the steel. So it's basically saying, you know, steel work workers are literally part of this like incredibly strong material that built the country. So it's kind of the it's turning the human versus machine kind of it's on on its head. It's like human as part of the machine. So it's kind of cool. And that's why that giant there's that giant dude bending that girder in the uh out there in Braddock. So yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that's a happy story or not. Uh, uh, humans are are uh, carbon based, and we need carbon for steel. Yeah, so I guess that was his contribution. Well, you know, it's also like we all got to go, right? We all got to go. Like, you know, when I'm done, I'm done. Joe Majrak, you know, he's part of whatever, whatever the you know coolest steel thing at the time was. Anyway, uh, so what caught my eye? Uh, the reason you're on the show and I mentioned this is uh, I was writing my own book, not on knives. On cooking, and I thought, okay, well, you know, everyone who writes a cookbook has to say something about knives, right? And so, mm-hmm. I, you know, I hadn't researched the topic in years, years, you know, maybe a decade mm-hmm. or better. And I was like, well, let me see what the current state of knowledge of knives is, thinking that it would be a little more than I had uh, looked up like, you know, 10, 12 years ago. And it turns out that much like coffee or baking bread or any one of these other kind of, uh, you know, things that seems relatively simple, you know, if you're not inside the thing, a lot has happened. A lot of knowledge has been gained and a lot of people have been studying it quite furiously. And so... uh, Long story short, it turns out I didn't know uh, a damn thing about it. And then uh, I came across your blog and your book, Knife Engineering, which, by the way, I know you sell primarily on Amazon, but you should think about putting it in this one store called Kitchen Arts and Letters in New York that cooks uh, go to. Now, your book is not for cooks. It's for literally knife engineers or anyone who cares about how a knife works. So, like, have you had a lot of cooks coming to you and, and asking you questions or not? Uh, well, my dad, uh, Devin Thomas, he makes custom kitchen knives. So, I mean, at the very least, I talk to him almost every day. Uh, but I also go to a forum called Kitchen Knife Forums, which has a bunch of uh, super geeked out uh, kitchen knife guys that love buying expensive knives and, and cooking things with them, sharpening them. You know, so I, I'm familiar with, with those groups. Uh, when I first started getting into knives as a teenager through my dad, those were some of the first places I went were um, there's an old dead forum called knife or in the kitchen on knifeforums.com, which completely doesn't exist. And then some of those people uh, went to kitchen knife forums. So uh, I've, I've been in that, that group for a while. And sometimes I pay more attention than other times. I mean, there's so many new brands and, and things. But yeah, I've heard from a lot of those guys, kitchen knife makers and, and the guys that buy too many expensive kitchen knives. Well, that's an interesting question. So um, so for those that don't know, yeah, you say your, your dad is a well-regarded maker of, uh, of uh, pattern-welded Damascus uh, knives, mm-hmm. right? And, so, and you're mm-hmm. also uh, like a PhD metallurgist by trade. So you're not just like another internet joker. Yeah, well, I am, but I also have a PhD in, in metallurgy. Oh. Right, 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 right. So, so uh, right, but you're you're an automotive metallurgist, right? Yeah, I work for U.S. Steel Research, uh, and I, I develop new sheet steels for cars. And so, there's a lot of uh, competition there. Like aluminum is loom, looming as an alternative, and those kind of things. And there's huh. Uh, constant uh, desires for higher gas mileage, better safety and things. And so the the automotive companies are really big on stronger materials, more ductile materials, more formable materials, and they want it to still be weldable in the same way, which is difficult or impossible to achieve. So it's an exciting area for development. Well, it, uh, aluminum, huh? What's old is new again. Uh, you know, for those of you that, you know, all of the old, like, hand, a lot of the old handcrafted, like, old roses and stuff were all aluminum back in the in the 30s and 20s, right? But in this context, I think we can all agree that aluminum is a terrible material for a knife. Yes, so, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But wait, wait, the, wait <laughs> just to go back to your automotive stuff, because I can't, because I'm curious, and sorry about this, but, mm-hmm. like, is it coming back just because of computerized TIG welding that it, like that they don't need to worry about not being able to weld it well anymore or, or, or because there's is welding so much easier for them now that they can bring aluminum back? Uh, I believe that in the Ford F-150, so its outer body 
is aluminum, not the not like the inner structure of the car that handles crash loads and things. But I believe that is epoxy. So they basically just glue it all together. Huh. Uh, but the the current automotive infrastructure is all designed for spot welding. So uh, that that is a big advantage for the current steel industry. But the the desire to use aluminum is because of its density advantage. Um, and we can use thinner steel for lighter weight, and we do that by making the steel stronger. So the the challenge is making the steel stronger, but still be able to form it into complex shapes while being very strong, because uh, those two things contradict each other. Uh, so I think we can stay ahead of aluminum. Plus, aluminum requires a lot of energy to produce and to recycle. And so with the full life cycle of a vehicle, steel is, is comparable or in some cases a little bit better. So I think steel's here to stay, or at least that's what, uh, that's what my CEO tells me. Right, that's what U.S. Steel <laughs> says? That's such a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, look, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of knives, though, I guess yeah, we can all agree. Well, that's actually not the not everyone doesn't agree. Someone asked. Uh, someone asked. In mm-hmm. fact, Capri uh, Sun, one of our longtime listeners, said, uh, "What makes one knife steel easier to sharpen?" We'll get to that later. But are ceramic knives a better choice for a non-enthusiast home cook? Mm-hmm. Well, the the advantage of ceramic is that it's extremely wear resistant. And so when it comes to wearing a knife edge, it will last a really long time. Uh, On the flip side, it's very brittle. And so it's prone to chipping. Uh, It's very difficult to sharpen effectively. You need at least diamond abrasives. And even with those, it's difficult to get a sharp edge on it. It does not like to be sharpened. Uh, And that's not just removing material, but just getting it to take a fine edge because it's so brittle. So uh, my take on ceramic is don't buy them generally. Uh, steel is, is much more durable, and uh, you can have knives that, that last a long time in between sharpenings with steel. Uh, and I, I think wear uh, of the edge is not even the dominant mechanism all the time of, of dulling your edge. So I think going just for more wear resistance is not the direction I would go. I think a more balanced set of properties is more desirable. So I would prefer steel. Right. I know a lot of people who go for really the like this new generation of really cheap ceramics and then just when they're when they're done, pitch them, which is not necessarily a sustainable way to live. But um, I don't know. Yeah. So uh, and when you but when you obviously I think we all know or maybe we don't that the the harder something is typically it's it's more brittle, but the, the it's, ceramics aren't on the same curve as steel, right? So are they even more brittle for their specific hardness than steel is or no? Uh, ceramics are almost always very high in hardness, usually a bit beyond where we typically take steel to. Um, I mean, we could go harder on steel than what we do now, but we don't, uh, you know, for several reasons, among them it being too brittle. Uh, but ceramics just very hard, very wear resistant, and very brittle. So I, I mean, I think some enterprising ceramic companies have have made some ceramic knives that have done well. But I still think steel is the preferred material. All right, now let's let's talk about steel uh, for a minute. Uh, maybe go through like the because we don't want to get too into the weeds because our average listener, while they like a lot of technical information, isn't specifically a steel mm-hmm. person. So you want to just go through, you know, uh, kind of the the different phases of steel and you know how they relate to the knife, like the the one minute pitch of how you know knife steel is 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 done, like what a carbide is, etc. Yeah, I don't know exactly how in depth. We should go. Uh, you were talking to me about austenite before the show. Austenite is a, a phase of steel that's non-magnetic. So austenitic stainless steel is more common in, in like cookware, pots and pans and sinks and things. Right. So that's your 304, um, your 316, like all, all the stuff that we're mm-hmm. accustomed to have all of our pans be made out of, right? Yeah. So knives are, are almost always uh, a phase called martensite, which is the hardest phase of steel generally. So when they, when they heat it up hot, it actually transforms to austenite first at high temperature, and then they quench it in oil. If you've seen that show Forged in Fire, you've seen them quench knives in oil. Uh, and that, that is to lock in carbon. And when you lock in the carbon into the steel, it becomes very hard, and it's a phase called martensite. Right, right. Uh, then carbides are, 
you've heard carbide before, probably like with tooling and things, uh, which is just a hard particle formed between carbon and another element. In steel, a lot of times it's carbon, or you can form vanadium carbides if you add vanadium to the steel, for example. And so those are hard particles in the steel, and they, they give you higher wear resistance, but also decrease your toughness. So in a lot of steels, we try to uh, with knives anyway, you want it, the right proportion of carbide and the right types of carbide to get the right balance of, of toughness, uh, which is resistance to, to chipping and wear resistance, the so resistance to wear. So, I mean, we can be much more specific on the hardness and the level of wear resistance and things than we could with a ceramic, for example. Right, right. So you go through this, you go through the whole process, I think pretty simply, you know, explain it pretty well in the book. So, I mean, see whether this is right for, for the listener, because I think it's helpful to think about how, how the knife works, right? So the important thing in gen- for, for most, like, you know, lower, you know, normal steels, right, Car- carbon, right, is not soluble in this, you know, to a high extent in the steel normally, right? So you heat it up, mm-hmm. it all becomes, what's the, how do you pronounce it again? Austin, Austinite, Austintite, Austin, I say it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it becomes austenite. Because as you heat it, right, the crystal structure of the of the iron itself changes such that the iron, the, the carbon can go into solution, right? So now you have this thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now in a 304, they add crap to it, or 316, like the kitchen stainless steel, non magnetic. They add stuff to it so that even after it cools down, it stays in that Austin, Austin, say it again. I can't can't get it right. My mind won't. I think, Steve, I think Steve Austin, a $6 million man, and I can't think of anything else. Austinite. Yeah, we... We can say Austin or Austin, Texas, and then you just add ite. All right, there the you end. go. There you go. So, so like it, they add a bunch of stuff so that when it cools, it stays in that form, and that's why it's non-magnetic. But that stuff also is not hard, right? Mm-hmm. Right. That's correct. That's right. So like that's why if it's not magnetic, it's not going to make a good knife, right? For steel, if it's not magnetic, it like it just because it's it is magnetic doesn't mean it's going to be good. But you know that if it's not magnetic, it's not going to be a good knife steel, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe we could make some funky steel that would be non-magnetic and still be good in a knife. I'm not aware of any. Right. So most knives are not non-magnetic anyway. I mean, the, the non-magnetic steels like the 304 and 316, they have to add a bunch of nickel to them. Some of them have molybdenum. So it's more expensive. It's cheaper for them not to use those steels anyway. Right. All right. So you have this hot steel in austenite with all of the carbon in it, then you quench it real fast and it forms this like weird thing, martensite, which is hard as hell, right? But even harder still, mm-hmm. the excess elements and carbon form these things called carbides, right? And then that's the super hard stuff that forms the little almost sand grains inside of these matrix of uh, steel grains. Is this pretty much accurate? Yeah, yeah. You've got a bunch of little like spherical particles in the steel called carbides and those resist wear like you said there so like if we have soft steel it uh relatively then we've got these hard particles then they help to resist the wear of the edge right and a, so, car- and yeah, a, and with, a carbide with, is what exactly it's 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 a, a metal complex with carbon yeah so the most basic is an iron carbide also called cementite um so in a simple carbon steel you'd have cementite particles in there and it's just uh the the composition is fe3c three iron atoms for every carbon atom so just you you put iron and carbon together and it makes an iron carbide and and that's the softest of all of the carbides right yeah yeah at least for uh for carbides that you normally find in in steel um the hardest would be like a vanadium carbide or a tungsten carbide so some of the the really high wear resistant steels will have high percentages of vanadium added to them. Okay. So now when you're talking about just carbon steels where it's just uh, cementite, which is the iron carbide and martensite, is that, that's what, is that mm-hmm. my, like my 1950s, like uh, four star Sabatier? Is that what that stuff is? Yeah, yeah exactly. And even uh, some, y- some kitchen knives in, in carbon steels today are using something similar. Um, or like the Japanese uh, kitchen knives made in uh, white number one or shirogami number one. That's just a high carbon, simple steel. All right. Now, uh, I happen to love those knives. Is that like, what do you think? In the kitchen, I, I love them. They're so easy to sharpen. And, you know, I touch them up every time I, every time I use them, I touch them up. 
And so, you know, my carbon steel Yanagi makes real fast work of fish and my, you know, my sabatier is when I'm slicing steak, I always go for my sabatier. Is that, am I making a mistake there or is that a decent, like, what, what am I giving up there? Well, you're talking about the broader question of just carbon versus stainless. And a lot of the information out there is not that useful because the category of carbon steel is a really big, wide open set of steels. And so is stainless. And so you can have non-stainless steels that behave very similarly to a stainless steel, apart from they will rust pretty easily. And you can have stainless steels that have some of the, the characteristics of the simple carbon steels. So uh, w- when we talk about the very general differences, if you read a, an article saying carbon versus stainless steel, it'll talk about carbon steels with low wear resistance that are easy to sharpen. Uh, they might say that it's higher in hardness uh, versus a stainless steel, which has a coarser structure. It's more difficult to sharpen to a really fine edge, uh, but it's stain resistant. Uh, but there are, are a series of stainless steels, uh, sometimes called like a stainless or a stainless razor blade steel or um, a Swedish stainless steel that can have very fine microstructure with characteristics that are pretty similar to uh, a simple carbon steel uh, with a little bit higher wear resistance just because it's chromium carbides instead of iron carbides. Uh, but then carbon steel is a, too generic of a term, so I use non-stainless instead. Uh, because a carbon steel refers to something specific and we use it generally. Uh, so a carbon steel is just iron carbon and some trace like manganese silicon. Non-stainless encompasses everything that we call a carbon steel. And some of those with high like vanadium contents, chromium contents and things, they behave like those stainless steels that some people like and some don't. Um, so yeah, I'm trying not to get uh, too in the weeds, but you can have stainless steels that are like carbon steels and carbon steels that are like stainless steels. And so talking about one versus the other doesn't always make sense. Right. Now with these simple carbon steels, if they're, they're perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with them. If you enjoy sharpening them, uh, then that's great. But I would also recommend trying some of those uh, very fine microstructure stainless steels and get the benefits of stain resistance at the same time. That are, that are just as easy to sharp, sharpen? Yeah, yeah, just as easy to sharpen. They take just as good of an edge, and they resist rust. Hmm. Right, so let me uh, let me. We'll get back into specific steels in a second. So here we have if if it's just carbon in it, it, it drops out. But if you have other like alloying elements in there, the carbides precipitate out, uh, if that's the correct term, as whatever mm-hmm. they are. Like you said, vanadium, tungsten, chromium, all of all of these other things, right? So. Mm-hmm. What I thought was really interesting, and I think our crew might find interesting, is in your book, there's a a whole boatload of micrographs that you paid to get shot of different steels. Uh, Oh, no, not paid to get. I took all of them. Oh, really? Oh. I polished all of the steel, I etched it all in acid, and I imaged them all under a microscope. Yeah, even fancier. Yeah, nice. Anyway, but I should have paid someone to do it. It was a lot of work. It looks like a lot. Of, <laughs> it looks like a lot of work. But something that I think I hadn't considered before, because uh, something if you read about steels a lot, you hear about powder steel, powder steel versus uh, mm-hmm. you know you know older style uh, steels, and I didn't realize what a difference it makes in terms of what's happening where the cutting is happening, what ha- like the size of the carbide and the distribution of the carbide. What a big kind of deal that can be in terms of how strong that, when I say strong, I mean how resistant to being effed up that, that knife edge is and like how like the bigger carbides can literally just tear out of the, of the edge of the, of the, of the blade or prevent you from sharpening down to a sharp edge in the first place. You want to talk about that? Yeah. Well, if you imagine your, your knife edge, you know, it's coming down at a tiny triangle at the end, we'll call it the tip of your edge, the radius, of that tip is going to be about a micron uh, in diameter. So if you you think about a little tiny circle at the tip of your triangle, um, if it's dull, that's going to be very rounded. And if it's sharp, that's going to be very triangular. Uh, and, And it can get down to a micron or even finer. And so a lot of steels have have carbides that are much larger than a micron. And so that makes it more difficult to sharpen them and uh, they'll tend to wear down to kind of the average size of the carbide pretty quickly. And yeah, so, so your maximum your maximum does, sharpness then is limited by the carbide size. 
Yeah, to some extent, though, with uh, sharpening skill, you can get most any steel sharp. It'll just be more difficult because you kind of have to get those carbides out of the edge to get it really sharp. Uh, but so powder metallurgy is made to, to keep the carbide size small. Now, a carbon steel is pretty easy to keep the carbide small because they will dissolve at relatively low temperatures. So you dissolve them while you're forging and then uh, get them to reprecipitate at a lower temperature. You did use that term correctly earlier. Um, and if we precipitate them at a lower temperature, then they're nice and small just because the diffusion rate is lower. But as we're getting into higher alloy steels, like adding in vanadium or chromium uh, for a stainless steel or a highly wear-resistant steel, those carbides will form in the liquid, and they grow to be quite large. And then you can't really break them up very effectively during forging. So uh, in a normal steel production, they've got the liquid steel, and they pour it into a mold, and then it just cools very slowly, you know, a multi-ton ingot of steel. And with it cooling so slowly, those carbides can grow and, and get really large and undesirably large. So with powder metallurgy, they pass liquid steel through a nozzle that gets sprayed by nitrogen gas. And uh, as it gets sprayed by the gas, it solidifies little droplets of the steel, so it becomes a, a powder of steel. So each of those droplets gets instantly solidified, uh, kind of like each one is a tiny little ingot. And then they put the powder in a, in a can, they call it, and they hip it, hot isostatic pressing, to get it all to solidify together. Now, they don't melt it. It's just a high temperature where they bond to each other. And then it becomes a solid ingot of steel. And so that gives you a combination of the high alloying for uh, high wear resistance and other things that we want but also with the fine microstructure that we want for high toughness resistance to chipping and uh, fine edges in knives. Because right, the, 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 the ability to stay tough at much higher hardnesses, uh, looking at your charts, radically better for some of these powder steels, right? Yeah, it's greatly controlled by the carbide structure. If you've got a lot of carbide, large carbides, those are all bad for toughness. Because if you've got a, this hard, brittle particle, it's easy to initiate a crack in steel. So they, they really will want to start uh, a chip there. Because it just the stress required to, to crack it is much lower than if we've got this fine distribution of little carbides interspersed in the steel. Now, are there any of these powder steel powder steels that are actually read, readily available in kitchen knives? I mean, uh, w w what are people pushing now that is in this kind of range? You know what I mean? Like you hear, uh, the co what are the common kitchen knife stuff? VG10, uh, the uh, AUS series 8 and 10, uh, the, and then in the U.S., what, but it's 440C is common, but these aren't powder, right? Are any of those powder? No, those are all conventionally produced steels. Uh, some of the more common powder metallurgy steels are uh, SG2, also called Super Gold 2, also sold as R2. Those are in Japan. Shun uses uh, those, right? Common... Sorry, who? Shun uses those, don't they? I think some of Shun's com yeah. commercially available knives. I haven't used one. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And and a lot of the uh, a lot of other higher end Japanese produced kitchen knives. So some that aren't uh, inordinately expensive, at least compared to how expensive they can get. Uh, a little bit less common in Japan are steel ZDP-189 and Cowrex. In the U.S., uh, we have uh, S35VN. You love that one, um, right? That, that, that shows up well in your ratings. Yeah, it does, though. It's been beaten out by another steel I designed that is not readily available in Ooh. kitchen knives yet. Oh, hold up, hold um, up. Wait, what's this new steel? Uh, the new steel is CPM MagnaCut. So that's a steel that I designed, uh, and the, the, the big thing that it does is with stainless steels, even powder metallurgy ones, they have a coarser structure than non-stainless powder metallurgy steels because the chromium carbides tend to be larger, even with powder metallurgy. And so the best steels in terms of toughness and wear resistance, edge retention, are non-stainless powder metallurgy steels. Uh, but what I did is I took a new approach where we balanced the chromium and carbon correctly, where we removed the chromium carbide from the, the structure and only have the hard, small carbides that we want for the best combination of properties. So MagnaCut... After it was powdered, you removed it? 
No, so we there's still there's still chromium in the steel, right. but you can dissolve all of the chromium carbide and keep the chromium in solution, it's called, so that it only is contributing to corrosion resistance and not to carbide. Because chromium carbide sucks, right? It's like it's the, isn't it like it's it's not a good it's not a hard carbide, right? You don't want chromium carbide, correct? Well, well, it's it's harder than iron carbide, but for for the very best combination of properties, you want a small volume of really hard carbides as opposed to more of softer carbides. Right, right. Because uh, if you have more soft carbides, they're still very brittle and make the steel brittle. Where if you have a small amount of very hard carbide, it gives you the wear resistance just from the hardness of the carbide. But they're small and you have a small amount of them. So the steel still has high toughness and resistance at chipping. So do you think this CPM MagnaCut is going to be inexpensive enough for a kitchen knife or no? It will show up in kitchen knives, but uh, it will show up in, in American custom-made kitchen knives. It will show up in, in higher-end um, production kitchen knives. So some of these are made in the United States, but they're, they're usually more in like the three $400 range. So not, not the $100 stuff that, that you'll find at your kitchen supply store. Well, uh, um, so, so it will definitely be in those knives. Right. So what are you getting, like from a practical standpoint, because a lot of people are going to wonder just from a practical standpoint, like what, like what am I getting between, let's say, you know, a, a $65, and we, let's, we'll talk about geometry of blades in, in a minute, but like a $65 uh, German made, whether it's made in traditional German style with the fat bolster and all that, whatever, but like a German style knife like, you know, Mercer, Wusthof, Henkel, like from the low to the higher price to like, um, you know, I think a lot of our crew is probably paying like the hundred and change dollar for like decent end Japanese Western knives, right? And then the next jump up, mm -hmm. maybe like the higher end uh, kind of Japanese chef knives and then like custom uh, Americans or anyway, I would, because I would say like our average listener probably is buying like Misono UX10s or max or, or thing, things like this. So like if that's the kind of quality that they're used to, right? Like what are they mm -hmm. going to get by moving to a super steel from a custom knife? Obviously they're going to get the fact that it's custom, the fact that it's awesome, that a human being made it, that it's, you know, it's got all that tactile niceness of being made by a human. Um, but what are they going to get in terms of making like it more fun to slice a tomato? Yeah, well, that, you've covered a lot of ground in your question. We'll try to hit some of those things. So one is that traditionally the, the German-made kitchen knives have been considered high-end or the best. If, if you read an, an article in these old magazines or books about how to pick out a knife, they'll talk about the forged bolster and the full tang and other things that don't actually matter at all. Um, and then a lot of those German knives have very thick edges on them and they just don't cut well. So the, the number one factor for how well a knife cuts is just it being thin. And of course you've got to keep it sharp. Uh, so the, the old European made knives are, are simply too thick to cut things. And you'll see that some of them are trying to make, uh, thinner knives and, and that's good. I'm glad we're pushing them in that direction. They also will use uh, relatively low end stainless steel that is not very hard. And uh, when, when steel is soft, it's hard to sharpen because it's kind of mushy and it doesn't hold an edge very well. Uh, then we have the wave of, of Japanese kitchen knives, which have become much more popular over the past 20, 30 years. And like you said, they can be more in the 100 maybe $200 range. And they're usually thinner uh, with harder steel, and they, they will typically cut much better and cut longer than those European-made knives. And so that's probably the sweet spot for a lot of people in terms of cost. Um, now, why would you go to anything higher end? Uh, I mean, that, that's always hard to say. There's, there's always a, you're getting less for your dollar the higher you go up in price. You know, when you're getting a $2,000 kitchen knife, it's not going to cut $1,800 better than your $200 knife. But will it cut like uh, but, $100 better for an extra $1,000? That's the question. Yeah, yeah, and, and it won't. It won't do that. Now, there are some knives in, in between, like even higher-end Japanese-made kitchen knives or uh, what are sometimes called mid-tech knives in the U.S. or just where it's uh, kind of a semi-custom product where instead of 
you know, making the handle slabs and then gluing them to the seal where there's always going to be like some gap or it's a, it's not exactly perfect. You know what I mean? Uh, instead they, they glue on the handles and then they, then they shape it all together. So that's perfectly flush with the tang. Um, they round the spine, they, they round the choil of the, of the knife so that everything is smooth and, and nicer and better. And so some of those are, are more in the 300 to $500 range. Uh, so in terms of pure performance, no, there's not much reason to go even higher than that. But uh, I am friends and and family with a lot of custom knife makers, so um, I can't I can't make them too angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, but the, like, I guess my my thing is also let's look at. And by the way, Nastasia is uh, has joined us. Hi, how you doing? Um, <laughs> and done. So Jack, so uh, and Jack, since I don't like I don't have the on my list of questions that the Patreon people wrote in, I don't have their names. Maybe you should read them so we can get their 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 names. Uh, but uh, sure, yeah. Why don't you read some of those? Uh, oh, I had one. Uh, you, we'll, we'll go through the Patreon first, and then I'll because I could ask questions forever. Sure. So let's go with Monty, who asks any experimentation with cryogenic hardening. They do it with wood plane blades, but I'm not sure if it would be applicable to knives. Kitchen knives. Yeah, cryogenic processing is definitely done on knives, especially in mid-range, higher-end knives. Um, it usually advertised if they're doing it, though not always. Uh, I don't know if I can give a really short explanation for what happens, but, uh, but we talked about quenching the steel to transform it to the hard martensite. Uh, the, the conversion to martensite is controlled by temperature. So if you get below a certain temperature, then it has fully transformed. If it does not fully transform, like we stopped the quenching at some temperature, like 300 degrees, then it would be martensite plus the soft austenite that we don't want. Uh, when we add other alloying elements to steel, the temperature of that transformation goes down, just like in the austenitic stainless pots and pans, where they, they alloy it up so that that transformation is so low that we never get to it at room temperature. The same thing can happen with knife steels. Uh, when we add high carbon or high chromium, uh, the transformation uh, is shifted down where it's not complete at room temperature. And so if we go into dry ice or liquid nitrogen or some other freeze treatment, then we can more completely transform that to make sure that it's a nice hard structure and doesn't have any of that soft, undesirable austenite in it. Uh, now, it gets bigger than that because there's a cryogenic industry that wants to tell you that they double, triple, quadruple the wear resistance just by using cryogenic processing. Uh, in my experiments that I've done, I've never seen that. It, it affects it in conversion to martensite, and that's what it does. So it is useful in certain scenarios. If they're advertising it, it means that they're doing an extra step, which costs them money, which means they are trying to make a better product. But it's not going to take it from good steel to ultra steel. Yeah, my uh, my old bass strings. They used to advertise that they cryoed them. Why would they do that on a on a bass guitar string? Yeah, it probably doesn't do anything useful. Yeah, it sounded good though. When I was like nineteen, I was like, "Oh yeah, cryo, yeah." You know what I mean? What's Sounds your, like cryo. Yeah, yeah. What? Uh, mm -hmm. Right? You know, like when you're like slapping your bass and they're like, "It's brighter, it's cryo." You're like, "Yeah," and the package is blue. You know what I mean? It's like mm -hmm. it reminds me of like tube amps that people go nuts over you know doesn't listen. matter what the tube is or what it does all right listen listen fair. jack listen i it's true i hate i de i detest any sort of loving something just for the sake of loving it if it's garbage right and i used to poo poo it right because my you know my dad was one of the last uh like generations of double e to, to like learn totally analog but become a totally digital guy so like i grew up in kind of like uh, a world that under you know where my you know my dad was always about analog and, and, and tubes and like solid state and he's like solid state amplifiers are fantastic you know what I mean and then once I plugged into an, like a, a an amazing Aguilar tube amp and I just hit my bass once not with cryogenic strings not with cryogenic strings and it was like <laughs> bump and it blew my chest in and I was like damn. That is the best ever. So it just so happens that my favorite bass amp of all time is a tube amp. Not that it couldn't have been solid state, because I love it as solid state technology. I'm just saying. All right, back to food. Back to food. Uh, so uh, let's let's take a like a little opportunity here um, on when we're talking about temperature and about marketing stuff. Two things. One interesting point you bring up is a lot of people, if they sharpen with power equipment, even if they don't think they're heating their edge up, the edge is so small 
that they could actually be heating their edge up and ruining the temper on their blade. True? That's what one of the things I got out of your book. Yeah, that could definitely happen. I'm not a proponent in general of powered sharpening. Now, if you're afraid of learning to sharpen by hand, I mean, there are guided systems, uh, things like the Edge Pro or the uh, Spyderco Sharpmaker, and those can help certain people. Now, what those do best is just to hold the angle for you so that you don't have to worry about that part of it. Um, but some people think if you buy one of those guided systems that hold the angle for you, that then the learning curve is gone. Uh, but you need to embrace the learning curve because the learning curve isn't removed by a guided system. It's just different. You're, you're learning different aspects of how to sharpen. Um, so I think uh, the best thing to do is just embrace it. Um, you know, use a, a less expensive knife if you're afraid of scuffing it up and just, just practice. Uh, sometimes local kitchen knife stores will have little classes that you can take where they'll say, oh, no, don't hold it like that. You know, hold it like this. Um, or or you're, you're going off angle at the tip here. Let me show you how to, how to do that. Uh, so, you know, a little practice makes perfect. Uh, if, if you're afraid of sharpening, you're never going to be, be good at it. You're always going to be cutting everything with a dull knife. Um, so just learn how to sharpen. And where do people, where do people's sharpening skills typically uh, show up the worst? At the tip? Uh, they mostly show up in people not sharpening, I would say. Uh, if, if you're bothering to try to sharpen at all, it's going to be a lot sharper than the uh, thousands of housewives with dull knives that have never been sharp. So, <laughs> so uh, I mean, don't be afraid of having a tip that's a little bit dull, but yeah, the, the tip is, is a tricky part. You know, you've got 90% of a blade that uh, is kind of one shape to it. And then the, the tip is, is a little bit different than the rest. So, so yeah, probably. Yeah. I spent the last, I don't know, like, uh, you know, basically forever hand, hand doing my knives and I've used a, mm-hmm. I've used a, a 10 inch, interrupted DMT diamond stone for about, you know, 12 years or something. And it's stayed flat that whole time. So it makes it very easy for me to touch the knife, touch my knives up. Right. And so consequently I I do, Mm -hmm. I touch them up all the time. Uh, But in preparation for this show, I pulled out because I have an edge pro, I pulled it out and resharpened all of my knives to a, um, you know, a, a more exact, not hand done uh, bevel. And it's amazing how much better you can see the bevel when it's exactly one angle all across it. Uh, but does that mean mm-hmm. it's necessarily better or no? It doesn't feel, uh, it doesn't feel like it's holding sometimes. its sharpness better. It feels like, uh, look, like based on the book, I was like, all right, I'm going to take everything. And when you, when you specify your sharpness, you specify angle per side because everyone's confusing, right? Some people give you the inc- total included angle of the blade, i.e. both sides, but you, you draw a line of symmetry down the middle of the knife and, and give the angle on both sides as the angle you're talking about, right? Can we be clear, clear on that? Yeah, that, that, that's useful when you're talking to sharpening people because when you're sharpening, you're not setting it to 30 degrees total. You're picking an angle on each side of your knife. You're sharpening one side at an angle of 15 degrees, and then you flip it over and you sharpen the other side of 15 degrees. So that, that's usually how you talk about things right. so when you, you're sharpening. And, and when you're sharpening at home, you, the biggest effect you can have on the performance of the knife is that angle. So if you go shallow, you know, like 10, 12, 15 degrees per side, uh, it will cut very well. But you're going to reach some point where it's too shallow, where it will it will chip or roll easily. Uh, now, if you go more obtuse, like 20 degrees per side, then it's now very strong and durable. But it, it doesn't cut as well, and uh, it doesn't cut as long. And so for, for home sharpening, that's really your, your biggest difference, not necessarily how high in polish you go. Right. So you don't, you're not a big believer in that micro serration or it doesn't really, what, what's the, what's the finest grit you think is useful for a home kitchen or for even a professional kitchen? Yeah, that's a controversial area. I mean, going higher in grit, it, uh, it makes it smoother. It makes it better at push cutting. Uh, coarser is better for slicing. It will slice forever if it's coarse. I mean, you basically have a saw instead of like a, a fine edge. And so it depends on how much time you want to spend sharpening, because if you want to keep moving up in your grit progression and you have six different stones, some people enjoy doing that. They're just into sharpening. 
they'd love to just sit down for two hours and, and sharpen one knife. And if you're into that, that's totally cool. I won't, I won't criticize you. Uh, but if you want to do quick sharpening, then just pick like a coarse or medium stone, like, uh, you know, 600 grit, 1,000 grit, and just finish it at that grit. Um, the, the other downside is the coarser it is, the more difficult it is to deburr, which might be too big of an area to get into right now. But when, when you sharpen on one side, you're, you're slowly creating this burr that hangs over. And you can feel it sometimes with your fingernail. If you move your finger up, up the blade towards the edge and up past it, you'll feel uh, a little piece of steel that's hanging off to one side, where if it's per perfectly triangular, you feel nothing. You know, you can move your finger uh, away from the edge and you don't feel anything. But a major part of sharpening is just removing that burr so that you have nothing but the triangle of the edge left. And when you sharpen on a coarse stone, those burrs get very large and they're hard to get off sometimes. I was always taught to sharpen on one side until you could feel that burr all the way down the blade, then flip it, do the same on the other side and then go finer to knock the burr off. Is that wrong? Is that too much, too much, too much abrasion? No, no, that's a good way of doing it. If you've created the burr, then you know that you've sharpened enough on, on that side. Um, but when you've got a core stone, you've got a big nasty burr. Uh, that's hard to get off. And there's a lot of, of mystery around burr removal and a lot of ritual involved in it. But yeah, usually you just go at a little bit higher angle um, back on the edge to to remove the burr. Um, but yeah, it, it it's too much to discuss for for this show, probably. And do you, are you a believer in taking the last couple of swipes at a higher angle to like put a slight bevel on the, on the edge to make it tougher? Or do you hate that? Uh, I don't hate it. I don't, it's not how I personally sharpen, but not because I dislike that method in any way. I, I haven't experimented th with that specifically. The, the goal, like you said, is one thing, it just, it makes burr removal very easy to finish it at a little bit higher angle, just right at the very end with a few, few passes. Um, and the other thing is that it, it's supposed to give a combination of durability from the higher angle at the very edge um, in combination with uh, a lower angle on the rest of it. So you're supposed to get a combination of good cutting behavior with a little bit more durability. And I can't, I can't really confirm or deny that that is true, but it does make burr removal easier. And burr removal is the biggest pain in sharpening, in my opinion. Right. Now, so like... I took a bunch of my knives, like I said, over this last week in, in, to, the, to 15 degrees on a side, so 30 degrees in total angle. And they, you know, they all went through paper like lunatics when I was, you know, I did, you know, I'm a typing paper, go straight through, make sure it doesn't tear. Great, right? But they didn't feel mm -hmm. like my blades lasted as long as they did when I was going to a slightly higher angle, but it could just be that the steel couldn't handle the... 15 degrees on a side, like maybe I should have done 17 or 18. Is that, could it be just like that, you know, and I'm, it's like a combination of like, you know, mid-range Japanese knives and, um, uh, you know, like, like Henkels and stuff like that. Is, is 15 just too aggressive for that kind of, like those kind of knives? Would you, would you think like 17 is better or no? 18? Uh, I think 15 is definitely doable, especially for certain knives and certain uses. You know, you want to make sure your kids aren't using the knives. Yeah, yeah uh, they are. Don't let them yeah. bank. Okay, well, that, that explains everything already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, make sure it's not banging around a sink. Uh, cut on a wooden cutting board. Don't cut on glass or, or metal. Um, and you know, if you're trying to go, go nice and thin and high cutting performance, and as long as you're cutting vegetables and meat and things, you're going to be fine. If you're, you're hitting bones or other hard materials, then you're going to be pushing the limits of that edge. I mean, I do, so eat, I do I, eat animals, so I go through things with bones. Yeah. I mean, but you're supposed to go around the bones. You're not supposed to cut through the bones. So, uh, but yeah, so 15 degrees, it, it can work for a lot of knives. It depends on the person and how you're using it. And to some extent, yes, the, the hardness and toughness of the steel, because it needs to be hard to avoid rolling or deformation. It needs to be tough to avoid chipping. Uh, but so that can be a fun thing to experiment is just what, what kind of edge angle works for me? How thin can I go before I start to see issues to keep it thin for really high, high cutting, but not so obtuse that it doesn't cut well. So you are a huge proponent in the book of very thin knives and also kind of come out against double, uh, single bevel blades, like, like classic traditional Japanese stuff, because you say for a given angle, a double bevel blade is like 30 
percent or whatever, forget the percentage, but better at, at cutting, right? But the, my experience is, and I want you to kind of like reconcile this, is that my single, my single bevel, thick spine Japanese Yanagi slices fish like none of my other knives do. Like I just, the fish looks at the knife gets scared and gets cut into perfect slices. Why? Like what, where's the disconnect there? Uh, in the book, I don't ever say not to use single bevel. I know, but knives. you kind of imply that the single bevel is not as no, good. No, that is not what I was implying. So m- maybe I can write the book better in, in the second edition. But uh, it was just, it's surprising that in testing of cutting behavior, that for the same total edge angle that the single bevel knives uh, cut worse with the same angle. But there's, there's an easy solution to that, and that's just make the single bevel knife a uh, couple degrees smaller. And uh, then it'll cut the same. So, but the the use of the the single bevel or an asymmetric bevel is for a specific cutting behavior, not necessarily to make it cut better. So, I mean, you've got you have to have left-handed and right-handed knives because they they cut very directionally. So, you don't pick a single bevel knife for better cutting performance. You you pick it for its cutting behavior. Right. I also think I also think they're fantastically easier to sharp. But we have a caller. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, Dave. How you doing? This is uh, Devin the Pot Control. How you guys doing? Hey, hey, doing all right, doing all right. What's going on? Nothing much. I just heard, um, I came a little late, but um, I'm wondering if you answered the question, what's better for a patina or corrosion on the blade? Like, if I were to, if I were to put a patina on the, on the blade versus if I were to just keep it polished, would that be better for the blade? So like on a, on a carbon knife, you're saying like on a carbon knife, yeah. like, all right, what, what do you think? Yeah. What do you think, Doc? Yeah, so a patina is just a natural reaction. Uh, it's a different type of rust, sometimes called black rust. Uh, but a patina can also have some regular orange rust mixed in. And it's just a natural thing that's going to happen. It's difficult or impossible to keep it polished if you're going to be using it. So it's better just to embrace the patina and let it form. Uh, the, the patina will also help prevent further corrosion to some extent. So uh, some people just like the patina. They'll even uh, use different techniques to force the patina on there in the first place so they can get a certain pattern to it that they want. Um, so, well, yeah, yeah I, embrace the patina. Yeah, well, I, you know, I have, um, I have these little square sandpapers, and I have, like, the, the dust from my uh, Jiromono. So I put a really... Um, a pretty pretty decent polish on it, and then I go over with the Jiromono, and so I just have this um, um, sandpaper that I can just polish up really quickly, and it doesn't take too long as I keep the blade dry. So I was just wondering, or I do a, uh, uh, I take deli meat, and I put deli meat on it, and it puts a really quick patina, and so I was thinking which one was better. Deli meat. That's yeah, like that's I, like I shades of, of crunching a blade in, in your uh, in your enemies. That's crazy. Deli meat. Right, but <laughs> deli meat actually works really well. And some people say using uh, uh, cover your ears if you're sensitive, but using blood or like cutting it to meat. But uh, I find that putting deli meat puts a really nice patina on it, super quick, uh, and it's that nice blue, and then it gets like all rainbowy. It's really it's really something else. You know what I do? Because I'm lazy, I, I spray my knives with Pam when I'm done with them, and then wipe the excess. Off. I knew you were gonna say that. Yeah, that is that's plastic, Dave. Yeah, because you know what I have right next to me, Pam. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like people oh, hate well. on Pam. My problem with Pam is the lecithin; it gets gummy. You know what I mean? Like Pam, Pam's knives yeah. can get gummy. But uh, well, Doc, what do you think about using uh, Pam as your spray on? Is it just uh, anathema to you? Should I be having some sort of mineral oil next to my cutting boards? No, I mean, any kind of oil is going to do it for you. So whatever is is most convenient. Pam does get gummy, but it is right there, and it sprays. It's so convenient. I love Pam. Uh, I don't use Pam the brand, by the way, but whatever. Stas, do you like Pam? I don't have any. You you, you never use a spray? I use it all the time also because, um, like, when I'm going on the grill— I mean, again, people are going to say, oh, blah, blah, but, like, you want that fast oil reaction, but you don't want to waste a lot of oil— bang, 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 and you can get that fast thing. Or like when I was doing tandoor, in between my tandoor dips, bang, bang, bang. You know what I mean? Anyway, but um, 
I'm happy to be a low quality individual. Oh, you got five minutes. Hold up. All right. So, uh, so, so, Jack, let's get to the other Patreon questions before it's too late. Yeah, let's 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 sneak this one in. So, uh, from Jonathan Oberhaus, what are your thoughts on the prolifer- proliferation of white label Chinese knives from Yang Zhang, Dalstrong, Kamikoto, Khan, Kangshan, etc.? Yeah, for me, it's a complicated area because there's a lot of uh, thoughts on just importing knives in general or importing knives from China or from developing countries, lower labor costs being undercut from uh, developed countries' production. Uh, So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of strong opinions in that area. Uh, There's no reason why Chinese-produced knives can't be high-end, and they have been getting much nicer in recent years. Um, In some cases, there's still some questionable business practices. I know a decade or two ago, uh, Spyderco, they started making some folders in in China, and they were told that the steel was a a given grade called 440C. Then they discovered it was not 440C at all. It was a completely different stainless grade. So uh, there's still cases of of questionable business practices. Of course, there's labor issues and other things, but the knives can be nice and also inexpensive to go with it. Yeah. Well, we got any more uh, Patreon questions, Jack? Um, yeah, from Schmidt and Bender. What will Dave change about the way he chooses, buys, uses, maintains cutlery as a result of his learnings here today? I don't know. I don't know. Get, well, ask me that right, right as we're leaving. Ask me that right as we're leaving. <laughs> we, we had one on, uh, uh, on, there was one more, there was one more in the, there was one more in the chat, um, earlier from Sargon. Why not plastic HDPE? For what? For the handles? And, uh, yeah. Like, Yeah. Be, the HDPE is slippery for handles is one problem with it. Or I mean, or for cutting boards. For cutting boards. Yeah, it's got to yeah. be for cutting boards. But what do you what do you think about HDPE as a, as a cutting board material? Uh, I mean, plastic is, is better than than metal or or glass just because it's softer. But uh, I mean, if you prefer the easy to clean, uh, you know, swap out a, a plastic cutting board, then you know you can do it. It's fine. And we had a question, I don't know who has sent it, but uh, how do you prefer to do your maintenance to your knives between sharpenings? Like uh, they found a ceramic rod that they like uh, that works well on hard steels. Do you have thoughts on uh, honing or, or like touch-ups in, be- in between? Yeah, I prefer a ceramic rod to a steel um, just because the, the steel just kind of burnishes everything. It doesn't sharpen anything. It uh, hypothetically, it's supposed to be for straightening the edge, but that that really only happens with soft knives anyway. So if you've got a nicer knife in in hard steel, then it'd be better to use a ceramic rod. You're saying the old school steels are built for old school knives, like my like my post war sabatier, which is a soft steel that has to be sharpened every time I use it. Yeah, even if I was using a simple carbon steel knife, I would prefer it was harder. So hard steel means that it it can take a thin edge. Um, and hard steel, sometimes people say that it's harder to sharpen, but it really isn't, especially in something with so little wear resistance, like a simple carbon steel. So I prefer knives with, with high hardness steel in it. Right, now, speaking of sharpening, uh, I recommend quite often uh, diamond to because, you know, these diamond compounds, they, they stay flat. They don't, you know, so I've never been, you know, one of these like mystical whetstone people where I'm like sourcing then like having to flatten my own stuff and keeping them wet, blah, blah. Am I wrong? Is, is this a bad way? Is the DMT diamond stone not a good sharpening implement? Well, the benefits of the diamond plates like DMT are that they stay flat, and also diamond is ridiculously hard, of course, so it will sharpen anything, even something with very hard carbides in it. So those are the advantages. The disadvantages is above a certain grit level, uh, diamond plates are not the best way of making something super polished. So if you like really polished edges, DMT plates are not the way to go. Uh, there are a new generation of diamond and CBN stones where they have a, a binder or matrix of softer ceramic um, that, that makes it so they can give a polished edge also. But though, those are, are rarer and much more expensive. So for a general audience like this, I'd say a DMT stone or, or a simple ceramic stone uh, works perfectly fine in, in most cases. Uh, anything else you'd uh, recommend uh, to uh, a cook or you want to just go through some some knife steels and you can tell me what you think about them real quick on, while we're on our way out? Uh, sure, we can do whatever you want. Oh, ask away. All right, VG, VG10. Good steel, not a good steel for the price. 
Uh, it's good for the price. It, it's similar to American steels like 440C and 154CM, but the steel is ubiquitous. If it's heat treated well, it works perfectly fine. It's not too difficult to sharpen. It's got good corrosion resistance and, and average to above average wear resistance. So it, it works perfectly fine. There's no reason to not buy a knife just because it has VG10. And our mo- well, I think for most of us, that's considered like a, a good ski- steel because we're not in the super high-end knife business, right? So like for like the, yeah, for like the mass-produced the knives. Option. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so if, if you see VG10, you can usually buy with, with confidence, I would say. Now, is, uh, is the SG2 worth the 30% more than knife costs? Uh, it'll have about 30% better wear resistance. Um, it, it might be a little bit more difficult to, to sharpen because of the wear resistance, but it will also uh, hold an edge longer. So uh, I think if you're into knives, some of them are also at higher hardness than the BG-10. So it, it might be a good upgrade for 30% more if you want to try out something a little bit higher in hardness and, and wear resistance and, and see what you think. Okay, so so you might pay for the SG two. You want a thinner, you want a thinner knife. You want it hardened well. Do most of the manufacturers now do a decent job of like straight up hardening or not? Yeah, that's a good question. So even in Japan, where the quality can be pretty high, they can take shortcuts in certain areas, and heat treating is is one of them. So a lot of the heat treatments are pretty decent. I have heard quite a few people say that they don't like the shun heat treatment, but I can't say I have personal experience seeing it be poor. So I think in general, the heat treatment is probably good enough most of the time in the, the Japanese produced knives. So once you're at that SG2 level and you're paying $150 for your Santoku or whatever, you're saying that for the average person to spend $500 to get an LMAX knife from, you know, a local producer, unless you just love the look and feel of it, it's not going to cut twice as well. No, it won't cut twice as well. There, there might be certain elements to it. Maybe the, the handles are a little smoother. Maybe things are a little more rounded and more comfortable. Uh, maybe you like the idea of, of American-made products, buying American. Um, those are all reasons to, to look at one of those. And like it's like like a lot of us, I think, just like the idea of having a high technology steel in the knife, even if it's not actually going to make the tomato slice better. You know what I mean? It just mm-hmm. is. Elmax a good steel or no? Yeah, Elmax is in a similar category to like SG two um, or S thirty five VN. So any of those powder metallurgy steels, those three are in a similar performance category. Uh, it'd probably be difficult to differentiate them in a blinded test. All right. Now, the average person should touch up their knives every how often? Uh, however often you want. I mean, like the average sure person it's, doesn't it's even sharp. know their knife is dull. <laughs> Are you familiar with, uh, I forget what it's called, but the, the, the because your knife is getting incrementally crappier, right? You don't know mm-hmm. that it's garbage until you pick up a good knife or until you sharpen. You're like, oh, I was an idiot. It was garbage, right? So, like, uh, I think the average person probably never sharpens their knives. And then the second most av- – they just hit it maybe on their, like, little steel every once in a while. The second average person maybe does it, like, once a year, right? And then, like, mm-hmm. you know – but, like, w- what do you think? Like, once a month, once a week? Well, like I was saying earlier, don't be afraid of being bad at sharpening or like, oh, I'll never get the tip right or something uh, because those people are, are afraid of sharpening. And so they might just send it to someone to be sharpened once a year or they do it once a year. Uh, but so, yeah, I mean, once a day is could be unreasonable depending on who you are. Once a year, it's going to be dull for three quarters of the year. Um, so it, if you are able to sharpen, then just do it as often as you want. If that's once a month, that's probably okay. But if you're doing any sharpening, you'll see that once a month when you're touching it up, like, oh, you know, it, it, it's way sharper now. This is way better. Why am I not doing this more often? I mean, um, that, there's some yeah. in-between op- options, like where you might use a ceramic rod to keep it touched up, and then every couple of weeks or a month or so, then you, you do more of a fresh sharpening. And the wheel sharpeners, do you think they ruin knives? Are they garbage? Are they trash, trash can machines? Uh, like a Tormek or something? You I, don't, I don't remember the names of them, but the, the, the wheel ones have always like hollowed out the edge of my knife and turned it into one big burr. That's why I stopped using them like 20 years ago. Are they better now? Yeah, you, 
Well, you need to be careful. Uh, the Tormek and other similar ones are water-cooled, which helps. But, yes, it adds a hollow, and they can remove material very rapidly. So, you know, if you... Oh, I don't mean you, the powder ones. you got to know what you're doing. I don't mean that. I mean, like, the old school, it's in my kitchen drawer. It's got literally two little wheels on it, or three, and you oh, pull... Oh, like, like the carbide wheel. Yeah, don't use those. Don't ever use those, right? <laughs> That's They're trash can machines yeah. made for trash can people, right? Yeah, throw throw them in the garbage. Right. You don't need it. Right. Okay. And um, the so don't be afraid. Uh, sharpen off. This is why, like, I recommend. See if you think this is correct. Is like uh, get something that is easy for you to actually do, so that you actually do it versus not. Right. Yeah. For people that are are afraid to learn to sharpen by hand, uh, I would say try the Spiderco Sharp Maker. It's just a regular. Uh, it's just like two ceramic rods that are held in a V. Uh, but it, it's well made for what it is. And so you just hold the knife straight up and down and you put it on one side of the V and then the other side and uh, buy a couple of stones at the same time so that when you're less afraid after using that thing a little bit, uh, see how simple it is to put the edge on, then you can move to, to sharpening by hand just because it, it's fast. So the, the sharp maker I like because there's less of a learning curve to it. Um, it's also small and, and portable. And so it, it's kind of easy to show someone how to sharpen that way. Cool. All right. We've been speaking to uh, Dr. Laren Thomas. Thanks so much. The uh, the the maker of Nice Steel Nerds, uh, uh, the uh, blog. What do you call? It? What, what do they call? It? They still call them blogs now. Blogs. blogs? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, blogs. nobody reads blogs, but that's essentially what it is. Yeah. So my website's knifesteelnerds.com. Yeah, it's very in-depth. And the book, which I highly recommend, uh, is uh, Knife Engineering. Steel, heat treating, and geometry. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon. Hopefully someday you get it at Kitchen Arts and Letters. I think, uh, you know, it'd be a good, good place to go. Uh, Jack, you want to do our <laughs> Patreon shout-outs? Yes, and Aaron from Oklahoma will get your question next week uh, about BTU burners. So, shout-out to the new Patreon subscribers. James Files, Lucas Dobrek, Braden Williams, Edward Pilatowitz, James Coughlin, Nate, Neil Herzl, Lucas Lima, John Rodriguez, Chris Wood, Peter Halmer, Matt Star- Sartwell, James Hegarty, Kevin Cronin, Ryan, Jeff Costi, Nolan Piercer, Brett Rosen, 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 Fred Meyer, Ficus Kirkpatrick, Rob Pond, and Sean Andrews, all new Patreon subscribers since last week's show. So thank you very much to all of you. Yeah, thanks, folks. And listen, um, we're still working out how the Patreon works and all this other stuff. So if we have missed your question on Patreon, please just let us know. I just don't want any of uh, you folks to fall through the cracks. Uh, Dr. Thomas, thanks so much for coming on. Had a good time. Uh, you, know, uh, maybe, you know, maybe someday I'll pepper you with more yes. knife questions. Yes, someday. He should come on for longer next time. Yeah. Well, we only do <laughs> yeah, one thanks hour. Thanks for having me yeah. on. This all is right. great. All right, cool. All right, Dr. Uh, Cooking issues.